0: Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths
1: ad-free.
2: Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more.
1: It's a nightmare. And it doesn't end. It doesn't stop. Every night I wake up three, four, five, six, eight times a night. First thing that's on my mind is Brian, my son and what we're going through.
3: At nighttime, I'll be laying in bed, and I'll hear Joanne crying in the middle of the night, sobbing. What do you do? How do you turn over to your wife, the mother of your child, suffering the way she is? Putting your arms around her? That doesn't help. I used to love spring. Love spring. The birds are chirping early in the morning. The cherry blossoms are blossoming. I get up in the morning, I put on the radio, and I, I'm old, so I'd hear a song from the 50s or 60s, and that's my kind of music. And I, I just smile, I just felt good inside. Now I feel black. The best minute of my day, Amanda, is the minute before I wake up. That is the best minute of my day.
0: (laughs) Feeling lost?
2: Then you're in the right place.
0: I'm Amanda Knox.
2: And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is is Labyrinths.
0: A few years ago, an acquaintance approached me and said, Amanda... I have some friends and they need some help. They need to talk to someone who's been
2: there. We met Bruce and Joanne for some greasy dim sum in Chinatown. Bruce looked like a guy with a nice set of golf clubs gray hair, a warm smile, but sad eyes. A man who'd done well for himself and his family and had worked hard to get there.
0: Joanne reminded me of my stepmom. Blonde hair, big blue eyes, braces on her teeth.
2: They were suburban baby boomers. Unpretentious, but comfortable. The kind of people who spend their Sunday planting flowers, watching the Seahawks game.
0: But we could instantly tell that their lives were not all flowers and football. They couldn't pass a steamer tray of shrimp dumplings without looking lost.
2: That day, we learned the outlines of the tragedy that had befallen their family.
0: And as the months went by, we'd meet again and again for dim sum. And they'd give us hugs and update us on their son, Brian.
2: Fast forward to 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, and they were still lost. But they had finally resolved to tell their story.
0: Okay. We are rolling. Okay, deep breath.
1: Yes. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, it's hard, very emotional for some reason. <laughs> Just really emotional, um, sitting here with you. Kind of brings back when we first were introduced to you. We've spent the last four years fighting this. It's hard to look at what it's really done to me, to my husband, to our family. This life that we were living, that we had planned, that we were doing, disappeared within seconds. And to take all that in is, I don't know that I've taken it all in. I mean, I'm still processing it. What about you, Bruce? How does it feel to be here? Scary. Really?
3: Yeah, extremely.
1: Why
0: is that?
3: It's scary to tell the story and, and hope that people understand.
2: He's right to worry. The problem Bruce and Joanne are facing is one that most people won't even try to understand. It's a problem society has little empathy for.
0: It's a blind spot that seems to be passed over. Even now, when so many of us are questioning long held assumptions about crime and policing, when we are reevaluating who's dangerous in our society and what to do with those dangerous people.
2: For the choices we make here have an enormous impact, not just on those caught up in the criminal justice system, but their families.
0: Four years ago, what did you think that your life was going to be like? <laughs>
3: I thought it was going to be white fences and puppy dog tails, and I honestly expected uh, to—remember, I was 68 at the time. I expected to hopefully be able to travel to a desert area (laughs) during the wintertime, become a snowbird, so to speak.
1: Mm. You know, we had raised three kids. Brian was just graduated from high school, and he went off to college. My daughters had moved out, and they were working, and— our life was the first time we had probably been together where we didn't have children directly in our orbit every day. We were like, oh, this is the next step of our life. Empty nest. Know, and yeah. Empty nest, and we're going to golf, and we're going to do this, we're going to vacation. And
3: I, I thought Joanne and I would finally be able to live life together and join retirement, because retirement years were there.
1: You've worked
0: your whole life.
3: I have, you know, as a kid, family had a, a scrap processing yard and fabric stores. And I used to sweep the floors and the fabrics when I was 12, 13 years old. And bit by bit on vacations, I'd work in the scrap yard or in the fabric store. And getting out of college, I worked in the store. It's always been a very demanding business. I mean, I answer emails, phone calls, everything I always have, uh, you know, 24 hours a day. So I was looking forward to waking up in the morning. And looking over at my bride and deciding maybe we'd be able to make some fresh-squeezed orange juice and maybe go out and hit a little white ball around a golf course or take a walk, just not the case. It'll never
0: happen. Can I bring you back to the beginning? Yes. Where were you when you received the call?
3: You, You know, I've written this over in my mind I'm sorry.
2: It's okay.
3: <laughs> I've written this over in my mind three million times. I got to tell you, it's been, I believe, 1,965,600 minutes since September 11th, 2016. I had played golf in the morning. Brian was sleeping when I left. Joanne had been invited to a friend's condo in Hawaii and was over in Hawaii. And I came home. And we play early, <laughs> the 6.42 tea time, so I, I'm exhausted. And it must have been about 11, 30, maybe even 12, I don't remember exactly. And I'm on the couch, started dozing, and Brian comes up, says he's leaving, and I'm thinking we're going to watch the Seahawks game. Brian's got a little bit of packing to do, and then he's getting on a plane on Monday morning, 9.12, to go back to school in Santa Clara. So he's coming right back, I'm thinking. You know, our last afternoon together before he goes back to school. And it's just the two of us. And should have pressed the issue. Been a little more fatherly, asking where you're going. I should have said, you're coming right back. We're going to watch a football game. But I didn't say anything. and, And I go back to sleep on the couch and I get a call. I don't remember what time, but it was a parent's worst nightmare. And he said, He was in Thurston County, and he had been arrested. And, of course, I'm, you know, what this and that? He didn't want to go into it. He needed the name of of an attorney. I got him a lawyer when I sort of got a taste of what it was. So he had to spend the night there, and I, too, spent the night in Olympia. I didn't tell Joanne. She was having a wonderful experience on vacation with her girlfriends. There was nothing she could do, and although it was certainly my baby, it was her baby. She had raised our daughters from another marriage, but this was her only child that she ever bore, and was her world. I didn't know how to break to her. She was in jail. So I waited until Wednesday and told her.
1: I... Went into a state of shock. I could not take in what my husband was telling me. I couldn't hardly function. I felt like a wild, rabbit animal. Did Bruce
0: tell you what Brian had been accused of when he called you that first day?
1: God, I can't remember. I know he just kept breaking down crying. And not just crying, sobbing, where he could not really talk. What was going through your mind? Oh, if I had been there, if I had done this, if I had done that, you know, five minutes this way, three minutes that way. You're just second-guessing yourself on everything.
0: Did you ever have any um, experience with the criminal justice system before all of this?
1: Nothing like this. Not ever. No. It feels like I'm in a dream. A nightmare. Those
3: first couple of days with Brian, we're sitting at home, scared. Brian could never imagine what was ahead of him.
2: Mm.
1: He was in a state of shock, as we all were. As a mom, nobody teaches you how to deal with something like this. There's no book, there's nothing that prepares you.
2: This is something Amanda's parents experienced when she was first arrested in Italy. It's something that's not often acknowledged the experience of the families of both victims and the accused suddenly thrust into the cold and complex machinations of criminal justice.
1: It's almost like you're just getting fired at constantly by the attorneys, the courts, the prosecutor. To take it in, it's like you're taking in a volley of gunfire, right? Sometimes I used to sit there and think, my God, I'm so stupid. How come I can't follow this? I don't understand it because... It's not meant to be understood. You'd go in there hoping and praying and thinking you were going to get justice, but all we got was this feeling of being railroaded. We fought for Brian, and that is not something that they like to see. They become very adversarial, and they just dig in their heels. Here's this child that I raised, and he he's a great kid. We were raised in a smaller community. We participated in the community. It was our home and we had friends and Brian was very well liked. He'd always had a huge empathy and compassion for people and he would always take in like the underdog. One kid was in school with him and he was a great kid. He's autistic and Brian befriended him and He loved Thomas the Trains, so Brian's like, take my Thomas the Trains, and he's in there packing him up. That was just Brian. He was just a very nice kid, very polite. And when you see the things that these people say about your child and the charges, you cannot believe it. Brian's sitting there in chains and an orange jumpsuit. And to hear this stuff coming at you, it's Unreal. They've got you on a a road, and away you go. Bruce
0: and Joanne poured everything they had into defending Brian, combing through court documents, filing motions, earning the kind of honorary law degree that only the parent of an accused child gets, that urgent, vital, and scattershot one my own parents have.
2: But... Brian lost. He was found guilty.
1: When Brian was sentenced, even the officers in the court, everybody was shocked. They were blown away because his sentence is nine years to life. It's a nightmare. He has a lifetime sentence.
3: Brian was 20 years old when he started spending his confinement. A 20-year-old. An eight by 10 box, two man cell that had three people in it. Three people. He would give up his bunk much of the time to the older gentleman and sleep on the floor. And I don't mean to be gross in any of this, but at nighttime, guys would get up, go to the bathroom, they'd sprinkle
1: on him. They'd go through his room every day. They'd steal things, they'd take things. You know, I haven't seen him since March because the prisons are all locked down and everything with this pandemic. So, you know, how do I mother and make sure he feels loved and valued in a place that's determined to take that away from him all the time? How have you been doing that? Well, I, uh, I was visiting a lot. When he was first sentenced, they put him over in um, Coyote Ridge, which was three hours away. And I would drive over there. I'd leave about five in the morning. Get there at eight. You could come on the preferences a half an hour before, and then you can get out of your car two minutes before. Then everybody runs up to try and get a number. You're one of 50 to 100 people that want to see their loved ones. So yeah, I just wanted to be there with him. And we would just sit for hours and visit and talk. And I wanted to make sure he had somebody he could talk to about his feelings and what happened. I mean, not only did I, I leave behind a life, my hopes, my dreams. It was nothing. What I've gone through is nothing compared to what he's gone through. So I'd have to keep reminding myself that, and that would kind of keep me going. And I'd always tell him, you know, you be strong and I'll be strong because we're out here fighting for you.
2: You've probably noticed that we haven't yet revealed what crime Brian was accused and convicted of. We wanted to show you what happens to a family when someone gets ground up in the gears of our criminal justice system, no matter the crime, whether they are guilty or not.
0: What you've heard from Bruce and Joanne, these are the consequences. It is not just Brian's life that has been forever altered by the way our society has chosen to deal with those it deems dangerous and unfit for freedom.
2: Bruce and Joanne haven't done anything wrong. They have committed no crime, have done no harm to society. They just dearly love their son, Brian.
0: Despite what he was accused and convicted of.
1: We were in court one day and one of the prosecutors turned around from talking to the judge and yelled at me that I was a horrible mother and that my son is a vicious child raper.
2: (laughs) We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener?
1: Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinth's Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinth. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit
0: patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.
2: Very few crimes elicit such a visceral response as the sexual abuse of children. Our urge for vengeance flares. Our empathy goes out the window. We often place those who have killed on a higher moral plane than those who harm children.
0: We wanted to understand the scope and danger of this problem from the perspective of law enforcement. So we reached out to Steve Moore, who served for 25 years as an FBI special agent. Conducting covert operations against white supremacist groups, running al-Qaeda investigations for the Los Angeles office post-9-11, as well as working on child sex trafficking cases. In his long and difficult career, those were some of the most psychologically stressful cases.
4: Society has a compelling interest in keeping pedophiles from permanently damaging and injuring these children. Pedophiles, when they abuse a child, will do damage for their entire life and frequently kill them as a way to keep from getting caught. I worked one in Virginia. The FBI had found a sex trafficking group where the main guy was headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. His business model was to provide one child to one person, and they paid a fee plus a deposit. And if you didn't return the child, you lost your deposit. They sent us out as kind of an undercover surveillance team to follow this guy because he had gotten a request, basically an invoice to find a child of a certain age, look, hair color, that kind of thing. And then we had to follow him and watch him for two days as he scouted schoolyards. We had an agent from Richmond with us. And at one point, he said, This is my kid's school. I cannot tell you what those words did to everybody on the radio.
0: What you're describing is utterly horrifying.
4: Yes. One night in the rain, we lost him. Literally, we lost him. And I have never been so nauseous in my life. We knew what he was trying to do. He was gone for 24 hours. And when he got back, we begged our supervisors to let us just arrest him then. And he said, hey, but then we haven't gotten him trying to commit the crime. We're saying, what if we lose him again and he does it? And we could have stopped him. That is a microcosm of how law enforcement feels right now. What if we could have done something?
2: And law enforcement is right to worry. Child sex abuse is a widespread problem. It's estimated that one in four girls and one in six boys will become victims of sexual abuse before they turn 18.
0: This is why our home state, Washington, has been aggressively tackling child sex trafficking.
2: Since WSP launched Operation
4: Net Nanny in 2015, it says nearly 300 suspected predators have been arrested around the state.
2: To hear the Washington State Patrol and local news tell it, they're winning the war on child sex abuse, getting dangerous sexual predators off the streets. Indeed, most suspects plead guilty. And for those who do go to trial, there's a 95% conviction rate. I do feel that the, you know this is one of the most despicable crimes you could do. It's harming a child.
0: That's the man who, more than anyone else, made Washington State a leader in apprehending dangerous sexual predators, Detective Sergeant Carlos Rodriguez of the Washington State Patrol.
2: Many see Rodriguez as a hero, defending countless children from sexual abuse.
0: And who can argue? As Prosecutor Mark Lindquist says,
2: There's nothing more affecting than crimes
4: against children.
0: There's just one problem. This was a manufactured
2: crime. They're just catfishing. They're creating criminals of innocent people. Bruce and Joanne's son, Brian, never actually harmed a child. He was never close to harming an actual child. And neither were the 290 other men swept up in Operation Net Nanny. Over 150 of them are still in prison, serving an average of six years to life for attempted child rape, and even if released, a potential lifetime on the sex offender registry.
0: Brian's ordeal began when he responded to a casual encounters post on Craigslist, where users had to certify they were 18 or older where people often sent photos that didn't match their personal descriptions, and where roleplay was common. It was a darker and older corner of the online hookup world than Tinder, but by no means niche. Back in 2009, Craigslist revealed that casual encounters posts amounted to 2% of all Craigslist postings. This was the place where Washington State Patrol laid their trap. A recent New York Times exposé describes it like this.
2: She came to the door just as she'd said, in torn jeans and gray sweatshirt, as beautiful as her photo. She didn't look 13 at all, more like she was in her 20s. When he got inside, she disappeared down a hallway. Suddenly, two police officers wearing bulletproof vests appeared from a back room, ordered him to lie on the floor, and handcuffed him.
0: That account from the New York Times is not about Brian, but another man caught up in the same net nanny sting operation. The undercover officer posing as the 13-year-old was actually 24, four years older than the suspect.
2: The particulars of Brian's arrest, the emails and texts with the undercover officer who lured him in, make him look worse than this. Though it's worth noting that the undercover officer had to reinitiate contact with Brian twice after he stopped responding. But perhaps more importantly, emails and texts are just that words. They aren't actions. And people say things all the time that they don't intend to actually do.
0: Bruce and Joanne say that their young, impressionable, and horny son was simply saying whatever he thought the woman on the other end of his text messages wanted to hear.
2: But let's set aside the question of Brian's true intent for a moment. The men caught in these net nanny stings are on a spectrum, from desperate adolescents with role-play fantasies to potentially dangerous predators. But the tricky moral questions of guilt are the same, for none of these men actually harmed a child.
0: So how does NetNanny actually work?
2: These things are
3: derived completely through fraud, deceit, and lies. They don't even follow the standard operating procedures. And they're allowed to get away with it because it's such a horrific crime that the bias is that they're just guilty.
1: Mm -hmm. It's like you're walking around in another universe. You're like, this doesn't happen. People don't sit for two to three days and psychologically manipulate a young person to be a criminal. Do
2: they? Do people do this? In Net Nanny Stings, police officers write posts on places like Craigslist, often benign-sounding women-for-men posts. And then, when a suspect responds, they steer the conversation towards sex with a minor, often a fictional son or daughter.
0: If they use photos... According to the New York Times, they are of the youngest women on the force, who are definitely not minors.
2: Over the course of several days, they will flirt with the suspect via text, continually bringing the subject back to sex with the fictional child. They agree on a time and place, and then the officers lie in wait, pouncing once the target takes a substantial step towards the commission of the hypothetical crime.
0: But what is a substantial step? Often, it's just showing up in a parking lot with a bottle of lube or condoms that the undercover officers insisted the target bring. They may not even have to leave their car to be convicted of attempted child rape.
3: Why don't the police say to them, hey, kids are in the other room. Go on in, I'll be right in. Because they're going to say, hey, whoa, well, you know, I thought you were kidding. I thought we were this and that. And they wouldn't have a case. But they don't do that. They just arrest them.
0: If you really wanted to see how far a suspect would go, you'd think you'd wait until the last possible minute to spring the trap. But Washington State Patrol isn't incentivized to do that. Once the suspect has crossed whatever minimum threshold for attempt that will hold up in court, giving them further opportunities to back away would only lower their arrest and conviction rate.
2: Compared to an actual child trafficking case, where concerns about re-traumatizing a child witness lead prosecutors to offer plea deals, net nanny arrests are a breeze in the courtroom because all the witnesses are undercover officers, making it far easier to charge the max and secure a conviction.
0: With very few exceptions, These men get convicted of attempted child rape and end up with sentences that are often harsher than those for men who have actually harmed children.
2: One reason for this is that Washington state offers alternative sentences for offenders who have an established relationship with the victim. But in net nanny cases, there are no established relationships because there are no victims. As the New York Times put it, in Washington, a man could be caught fondling his niece and potentially qualify for an alternative sentence. But if he sends lewd texts to an undercover detective, he does not.
0: In prison, these men convicted of phantom crimes are often treated just like actual rapists.
1: There was quite a few guys in the prison that were associated with this net nanny And they would get the press releases, the guards would, and they would give them to other prisoners to read the uh, press release out in the middle of the night. So the guys had, you know, no cover. They had no ability to protect themselves.
3: So far, eight people have committed
2: suicide. One was stabbed to death. And in the midst of looking out for their own safety, there's the strange cognitive dissonance that young men like Brian have to deal with. In his mandated sex offender counseling sessions, they ask, tell me about your victim, to which Brian can only reply, I don't have one.
0: Meanwhile, on the outside, the Washington State Patrol holds press conferences that hand wave that detail, as if the lack of any victim were irrelevant.
2: Prosecutions of actual human traffickers are rare, So the big arrest numbers and high conviction rate in Operation Net Nanny are a PR win for law enforcement, despite the fact that these sting operations are not saving any actual children from abuse.
0: These press conferences then help them solicit donations for further sting operations. According to the Times, Operation Underground Railroad, a private, religiously-minded entity that aims to rescue children from sex trafficking worldwide, donated more than $170,000 to the Washington State Patrol, paying for detectives' hotels, food, and overtime while conducting the stings.
2: But these press conferences also function as a further form of punishment. They do these press releases. I guess they call it name and shame. And
1: then they did us the horror of coming to our little tiny town newspaper And writing a huge op-ed piece, basically calling Brian a child raper. It was just like a bullet to Brian's heart. They just took this kid out.
0: There's no doubt that these stings play great for the reputation of law enforcement. But at whose expense? Who are these men arrested? And what are they actually like? Former FBI agent Steve Moore says it's a mistake to paint them with such a broad brush.
4: This is our problem. We're treating these people as a group, not as a bunch of individuals. There is a huge spectrum of people who prey on children, and it goes from the uncle or the grandpa who abuses a family member, all the way to people like Epstein, who use huge amounts of money, influence, and power to get what they want, where people are literally out there doing this as a business. And along that spectrum, you have a multitude of different illnesses that just have one thing in common, and that is children. Some are incredibly receptive to treatment. And will not re offend, while others have been found to be almost incurable in this. And one size is not going to fit all when you try to remediate this problem.
0: The image we have of the person who is arrested for attempted child rape is usually the lone wolf predator, the unloved creep holed up in some basement or prowling a playground in a trench coat. We don't usually imagine that person as having friends as being part of a family and community, as loved.
2: Or if they are loved, we imagine that, when the truth comes out, their friends and family would recoil in horror and betrayal, and disown them.
0: We don't imagine anyone coming to their aid, standing up in their defense. But Bruce and Joanne are not alone in defending their son.
2: The men arrested in Net Nanny range in age from 17 to 77 and a fourth of them are 25 or younger, like Brian. There are surely a few men in this group who are legitimately dangerous. One caught had previously committed several rapes, but most have no felony record. And even the state patrol acknowledges that around 90% of them had no child pornography or history of violence, just like Brian.
0: And possession of child pornography is a huge predictor of child sexual abuse. According to the Department of Justice, in 2012, over 80% of men arrested for child sexual abuse were found to be in possession of child pornography.
3: 90% of these people have no history of any reports or anything of abuse of
1: a child. Doesn't something seem odd? Every one of these people have a story. Every one of them. There's soldiers, there's students, there's dads, there's brothers, there's neighbors. They all have a story. And they're not these vicious child sex predator rapers that are out to harm kids. That's not the whole story. In fact, that's really, for most of these men, not it at all. So what is the whole story?
0: We're talking about men who have not raped anyone but who have been accused of attempting to rape a hypothetical victim.
2: In legal terms, attempted crimes are inchoate crimes—a criminal act with no actual harm. Crimes of attempt require mens rea—intent—and a substantial step towards completing the crime. Something more than thinking it up or planning it out. But where is the line that separates preparation from action?
0: The common law doctrine of dangerous proximity is often used as the test. Did the suspect come dangerously close to committing the crime? Dumping the gasoline and striking the match? Loading the gun and aiming at the victim? Firing the shot and missing even?
2: Washington State Patrol says that Brian came dangerously close to committing child rape because he expressed explicit interest and drove to a location. Bruce and Joanne object. They say that just because Brian expressed interest in an email exchange doesn't mean he would have ever followed through. Furthermore, how could Brian come dangerously close to harming a child that didn't exist?
0: Well, it turns out that legally, this defense doesn't hold up. It's known as factual impossibility. A 1902 Missouri Supreme Court case, State v. Mitchell, set the precedent. The defendant fired shots into a room where the intended victim usually slept, but they weren't there that night, and the shots hit an empty pillow.
2: It was physically and hence factually impossible for the defendant to have killed his intended victim. But the court ruled that if his intent was criminal, his failure to achieve his goal due to circumstances unknown to him was irrelevant.
0: This precedent was upheld in a 1933 case where a woman admitted to attempting to poison her husband with arsenic, only to accidentally put sugar in his coffee. Both defendants were convicted of attempted murder, despite the fact that their actions could not possibly have harmed their intended victims.
2: So the fact that there were no children in harm's way, from the court's perspective, is irrelevant to the guilt of the men caught in Operation Net Nanny.
0: But what about entrapment? The conception of an offense by an officer or agent and the procurement of its commission by trickery, persuasion, or fraud.
2: The entrapment defense rests on whether the defendant had the predisposition to commit the crime and whether the state's actions would have led a normally law-abiding citizen to commit it.
0: When authorities conduct sting operations, they make sure to collect a record of intent to nullify this potential defense. But even when the intent seems clear, there's something morally uncomfortable about the whole concept.
2: Like in the 2010 Portland bombing plot. The FBI began surveilling a Somali-American student after they noticed some emails between him and a terrorist recruiter. The FBI then stepped in undercover and played the role of recruiter themselves. They helped the target create a fake bomb and arranged the circumstances in which he would detonate it, by placing it in a van outside a Christmas tree lighting festival in Portland, Oregon.
0: The suspect was convicted of attempting to use a weapon of mass destruction and given 30 years. But how far would he have gone down that path without the assistance of the FBI?
2: For they created the circumstances and urged his intent, just as the Washington State Patrol did for all the men caught up in Operation Net Nanny. We often think of pedophiles as grooming their victims. But if there's any grooming happening here, it's being done by the police.
0: But let's give the authorities the benefit of the doubt for the moment and assume these men, Brian included, weren't groomed. That they truly would have raped a child if a child had actually been there.
2: The Washington State Patrol and the court system that has convicted these men would have us believe that their intent is all that matters and is worthy of a harsh sentence despite the fact that their crimes are fundamentally victimless.
0: But if all that matters is a person's intent, good or bad, then why do we have different moral intuitions about actions that succeed or fail due to external circumstances? Philosopher Thomas Nagel called this moral luck.
2: The reckless driver who runs a red light gets a ticket the reckless driver who runs a red light and accidentally kills a pedestrian, ends up in jail.
0: Nagel identifies several ways that our moral assessments are disturbingly subject to luck. Two of them are directly applicable to Operation Net Nanny. The first is constitutive luck. What kind of person are you? For none of us chooses our inclinations, weaknesses, or temperament. Drug addicts don't choose to have addictive personalities any more than pedophiles choose to be born with harmful desires.
2: The second is circumstantial luck. Nagel offers the example of an officer in a concentration camp who may have lived a quiet and harmless life if the Nazis had never come to power. We don't choose our circumstances, but our circumstances shape our choices. With Operation Net Nanny, The circumstances in which the men arrested took a substantial step towards harming a child were fabricated by police, who encouraged that bad intent.
0: Nagel himself admits that there is no easy solution to the paradox of moral luck. We don't have a solution either. But reminding ourselves that, as Nagel says, everything we do belongs to a world that we have not created, helps us to understand why Bruce and Joanne are fighting to save their son.
1: It doesn't end because we chose to fight it. And in fighting it, there's the good and the bad of that. The bad, you definitely are targeted for more harsh sentencing. The good is that, I I don't know, I guess you're fighting. I don't know that there's good in fighting our system, but I had to fight for my son, but it wasn't only that. We're not special. They did this to a lot of people.
0: With few legal remedies available to help their son, Bruce and Joanne have been banding together with other parents of young men arrested in Operation Net Nanny and are looking for political remedies to their shared tragedy.
1: We're like, please don't let anybody have to go through this. Any other parent. I don't know what else to do with all this except try and help other people through this and ha- try and give them a voice because your voice gets taken away, because you're a nobody all of a sudden. You're not only just a nobody, but you're an evil, ugly, horrible person.
3: We've become sort of the point people for all of these people. We've reached out to several others. We've gotten stories. We've talked to them. We've sent emails. We're in some ways their hope in that we've contacted legislators, of which the ones we've contacted all look at us like we're aliens. They can't even believe this is going on. And when they hear the story, one of them said, well, that's entrapment. One of them started crying, holding Joanne's hands, just literally started crying. And they feel the pain that we're going through, but the law is made the way it is. The only way I ever see this being resolved is through the legislature, changing the law and changing the consequences. They're actually burying these individuals and their families alive. I feel buried I feel dead in walking around. When I talk to legislators, the ones I've talked to, they're behind us. They support a change. But it's like pushing a boulder straight uphill. So, you know, we're taking a bite of the elephant one bite at a time.
1: When they say they're making the community safer by taking these horrible people off the street, well, my son wasn't a horrible kid. Definitely, he was psychologically manipulated and played and lured, but, God, not a bad kid.
0: It's easy to dismiss the mother of a convicted criminal as biased, blinded by her love. But I think we too easily judge people like Brian through a binary lens of monster or saint. The truth is, even if he were guilty of a crime, he could also be a good kid.
2: This is a truth that the authorities in the media seem unable or unwilling to see. To them, the men caught in Operation Net Nanny are, by definition, creeps. These officers go
4: online, they pose as kids, and they
2: lure these creeps in. And the little empathy they have, you can probably guess where it's directed.
4: And I imagine this type of work has got to be emotionally really taxing for these officers, right?
0: Washington State Patrol justifies Operation Net Nanny by saying they're doing it for the families. They're looking out for parents and their children. But what about Bruce and Joanne? They're parents too. Brian is their child. Does our society have a responsibility to look out for him too?
2: On September 11th, 2016, Brian sent some text messages, and he drove to a parking lot. It's impossible for us to know what Brian truly intended that day, but we do know that he never actually caused harm to anyone. Meanwhile, our justice system has unquestionably done harm to a young man and his family.
1: You forget who and what you are going through something like this. You become either angry or bitter or or weepy or depressed. or, I mean, I've been through them all. I've been strong and a fighter, and then the next minute I can be broken down and barely functioning, crying, whatever.
3: It's not just our son Brian that got sentenced. Every one of us are serving the same sentence alongside of him. My entire day going to work and working over 40 hours a week, Alongside of it, every minute I'm trying to fight, what can I do to make my son's life a little better in his current state of residency and mind?
0: How has this been within your family? Have you all always been on the same page, or has there been conflict?
3: No, we have not always been on the same page. Joanne and I, there's not a day that goes by that we don't give each other a hug and a kiss and start yelling at each other because she sees this this way. I see that this way. She thinks I'm not listening to her. I think she's not listening to me. And it is, screw you, and uh, I'm grabbing my keys and my pajamas, and I'm moving out. And believe me, there are words that are said that I can't believe that we say to each other out of pain and hurt. So between the two of us, it's daily. But the next morning, wake up and... We know we're in the fight together, and we know we love each other, and we love our family. And if we didn't love each other as much as we do, we would never make it.
0: What you're talking about really, really resembles what my family went through, like— Every time there was a family gathering, my Oma's way of dealing with it was she was very angry. And so she wanted to talk about how angry she was at the prosecutor. And she would also always carry a candle with her and she would light the candle and she would say, this is Amanda. And so, like, that was my grandma's way of dealing with it. Whereas my mom was like, I can't just rage about the prosecutor all day long, every day. And so my mom and her
1: mom were having this disconnect. Right, right. Um, For me. You make these choices, okay, I can't rant and rave anymore, I just can't do it, right? I just read an email that I wrote a couple of people and I said, you know, I reread it and it was just anger and it was so strident and I thought, well, is that really who I am now? Is that who I am? Like, I've had to wrestle with all of these questions and that, you know, how do I go forward? What is my life? You know, it stopped. Our life has stopped.
2: And Brian's life hasn't just stopped. His whole future has disappeared. He and his family got a taste of what lay in store for him when he was released on bail shortly after his arrest.
1: The conditions of him being released were harsh. I mean, he couldn't go to a grocery store. He had friends that were under 18. He couldn't see his friends. He couldn't do anything except sit at home. He... Was afraid to go for a run. If he went by a school, he might be rearrested.
3: And as we talked to the lawyers, the lawyers said just go on and live your life. Which that ended up getting him in trouble.
1: How so? He had friends that were from out of town and they were gonna be playing in a it sounds so silly, in a lacrosse game.
3: And he needed to see his friends. He needed to be able to tell his story that, hey, I'm not what you're reading in the newspaper. That's not me.
1: And it was older kids playing lacrosse. We asked our attorney. He goes, sure, okay. It's a nighttime game. And we went.
3: It was a rainy night. It was actually one of the worst storms of the year that night. And we made sure he sat with us so he wasn't around kids. Now, the event during the day was training camp for kids K through 12. But it ended at 4.30, and then the the men said 6.30 or
1: 7. People were staring at me and giving me filthy looks, and one of the women, her husband's an attorney, and she said, well, I know that there's restrictions that he has when he's out on release, and he broke them. She's known my son for six, seven years, adored him, laughed, told me what a great kid he is, how funny is Brian.
3: Somebody at the game reported that he was there, and it was a children's event,
1: so they called up and they said, "We're going to rearrest your son." They came to our house with, oh, I think they had about eight to ten SWAT type vehicles. They were in SWAT gear. They surrounded the house. They took him in and rearrested him and And that was due to people that had known us for years.
0: Brian may never get released. After six more years, the parole board has the ability to punt him back to prison in three- to five-year increments for the rest of his life. But if he does come home, freedom will be far more difficult than it was in the immediate wake of his arrest.
1: We thought that the terms to get his bail and get him out of jail was tough. This is, it's life-ending, basically, because of the requirements of sex registration. He has over three pages of requirements that you have to live by. His life is going to be a tough, very limited life. He was in college. He was going to be living on his own for the first time in his life. He said, who's going to love me, Mom? Who's ever going to want to be with me? Who's ever going to want to... Have a child with me. And I said, Brian, you're a great kid, and we're just going to find ways to deal with this and tell our story. And that's all we can do.
3: I'll hear a song that reminds me of a girl I was dating maybe in high school or in college, and it just makes you feel good inside. But the first thing that pops into my mind is thinking, my son will never have that. He'll never feel the joy of that young, first, true love. When he gets out, he has to get permission to kiss a girl from his parole officer. How do you go through life knowing that your child is going to be strapped with such incredible demands upon him and told to live a normal life? How are they possibly going to re-enter society?
1: It's like you're a rat on a wheel. You know, well, to be a sex offender, you have to get a job. That's part of your community custody release. You have to get a job. Okay, well, let's see, I can't use the Internet, but everything's done online when you go for a job interview. And the minute you say sex offender, it's like, okay, fine, I can't hire you. Mm -hmm.
2: This is even true for companies like Mod Pizza that go out of their way to give second chances and hire people with felony records. And they're to be commended. And in talking to one of their
3: executives, I praised them for what they do for previously incarcerated individuals. And he said, yes, we try and give a chance to everybody that we can, except we're not allowed to hire sex offenders.
1: Mm.
3: City of Seattle, you have to rent to everybody. Felon, whatever, makes no difference except for sex offenders. I can't find a place that is far enough from a school, a church, a beach, a park that allows him to live there. I'm working to try and leave enough money so he can be able to take care of himself because I'm old. If he's released on time, he will be released on my 78th birthday. 78? How many more years do I have with the Lord's prayers? Hopefully long enough to make sure he can figure a way through the puzzle ahead of him. Brian wanted to become an engineer. So that takes a lot of schooling, and I don't know that he'll ever be given that opportunity. Financially, I don't know if we'll ever have the money. I'm working to be able to allow him to make that decision, where so many of these people will never ever have opportunity. Most of the people that come out on the sex registry, most of them spend their lives living in the woods.
2: You may or may not think that such a life is what Brian deserves. But what do Bruce and Joanne deserve? What does society deserve? When it comes to this issue, we've allowed our emotions, our moral disgust, and our fear to cloud our judgment about what is actually effective.
3: We read articles every day about how sex offender laws, registry laws, do not work. They're just punishment and shame.
0: Bruce is right. Study after study shows that registry laws don't reduce recidivism. They may even increase it by denying those convicted of sex offenses the opportunity to successfully reintegrate into society. Studies also show that child molesters have lower recidivism rates than generally believed, Between 9 and 35%. For context, those convicted of assault or robbery have recidivism rates above 80% in some studies.
2: For former FBI agent Steve Moore, the problem with stings like Operation Net Nanny is that they cast
4: their net too far and wide. If you're going to enforce something, what is the worst thing you could do? You could destroy public confidence in how it's done. I don't have a lot of problem with well thought out, reasonable policing of the internet, but there's a difference between policing and targeting. There is a difference between somebody like Brian, who was on Craigslist using his own name, And a 40-year-old man posing as a 12-year-old girl in a tiger beat chat room. When somebody is in their late teens, early 20s, my God, they may not even realize what's going on in their own heads. That's the time to put them into a rehabilitation situation instead of, ironically, putting them into a situation where they'll probably get sexually abused. First offenses are being Very, very rigorously enforced, but at the same time, we don't have a crystal ball into their mind and say, if this guy gets six months in a halfway house and counseling, well, the judge who gave him that is on the hook for the next time that guy goes out and potentially kills a child. People don't want to be the one who let out a potential child murderer. So that is the disincentive. And so when a judge, when a politician, when a DA, when even an investigator or a prosecutor gets a pedophile case, they want to hammer it because anything less is a liability. They view these people as ticking time bombs. And unless you can convince them that they're not going to go off, they're going to want those things put far away from them. It's so much easier to send somebody away for a long time and say, well, if they go out now and do something, at least I did my part.
0: As for us, Operation Net Nanny doesn't measure up for a lot of reasons. For one, it's designed to nab strangers seeking children over the internet. But 93% of child sexual abuse happens within families and intimate communities like churches, sports teams, and schools. Wouldn't it make more sense to put those proactive policing resources towards educating and supporting families and communities?
2: Our culture of hysteria is producing criminal policies that look good in political campaigns for tough-on-crime DAs and sheriffs, but which do little to stop actual human traffickers or to reform potential abusers.
0: What should have happened to Brian?
3: What the, every psychologist I've talked to said, they should have had a year or two of counseling. They should have been given diversion. Education and counseling be watched for a year or 24 months.
0: This really presents a question for all of us. What kind of society do we want to live in? Are we willing to use manipulation to catch potentially dangerous people? even if we risk locking away confused young men who pose no risk to society? And if we do successfully identify a person who has the potential to commit a serious crime, when we catch them before they ever hurt anyone, are we a society that destroys any chance they have of a normal life, or one that recognizes the threat they pose and watches them very carefully while also trying to help them battle their urges, improve themselves, and contribute to the good of all.
2: Are we a society that has sympathy for people like Bruce and Joanne, or one that writes off their suffering as collateral damage? The light that I see coming at me through the tunnel is still a
3: train, not the sunlight. But we'll get through this one bite of the elephant at a time. And that's where my hope and my darkness disappears.
0: Well, I have taken an hour of your time, so I just want to ask if there's anything on your mind that you want to say before I thank you and let you go on your way and take a deep breath and go for a walk.
3: The one thing that I want to say is to all the other mothers, fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters, who are living the same sentence as their loved one, I pray that all of us can one day put this somehow behind us and begin to live life again
1: Thank you, Amanda. I just want to say really thank you for letting us have a voice. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Let's get out of this stuffy booth, okay? okay? (laughs) Was that okay? Was I just like crying all the time? Could anybody understand me? You're perfect.
2: There's an answer to Joanne's question. Yes, we can understand.
0: But the more important question is, Will we choose to?
2: Join us next time as we sit down with tattoo master, street artist, and guitar legend Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers as we explore the trauma of his mother's murder, which has been haunting him for decades.
0: So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox.
2: At Man Under Bridge.
0: At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths.
2: This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Udo Karp.
0: us this episode fun fact for every hour of Labyrinths you enjoy we put in dozens of hours researching outreaching interviewing scripting editing and audio engineering
2: what keeps us going coffee Coffee.
0: so if you're enjoying Labyrinths please buy us a coffee
2: head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson where you can make a monthly donation
0: thanks for getting lost with us